Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Grab a seat, everybody. How are we this morning? Kind of good. Are we fighting through that Easter fatigue? You know what they say, if Jesus can make it through, so can you. All right, everybody? <laughs> Welcome to Crossroads. My name's Charlie. I'm the senior pastor here, and um, we are excited about everything going on, lots of stuff. If you haven't connected with us yet going on, we have a picnic on Sunday a week from now, which means it's going to rain all week, everybody. So, you know, carry an umbrella with you. We're going to hopefully get things dried out, and we'll post this week and probably make a call on Sunday whether or not we're going to play slip and slide or not outside in, in, the, in the life area. Um, if you have a Bible with you today, we're going to be in Matthew 6, and we started a series last week that we're calling Greater Life because kind of where we began things, where we kicked things off was that the resurrection doesn't start a life that we will live one day when, it starts a life that we live now because. Because Jesus died and rose again, he's ushering us in to see a present reality that we couldn't see before. He's saying that there is a life that is unfolding right here and right now in front of you that I came to create, and you got to see it. you got to live into it. And so his whole message, when he's walking and talking and people are listening and following and he's healing, is he's saying there's a greater way. It's not going to be easy, and there might be some pain, but this is not how this world was supposed to go, and the resurrection is the proof that what he talked about is real. And so when he raises from the dead, it's not just something that did happen or something that marks will happen one day. It's a present reality to the followers of Jesus every day to see the life that he came to show us. And so one of the best places to find it is in this really lengthy sermon he gave called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. It's the longest scripture we have of him teaching. And so when I give a lengthy sermon, I'm just being Christ-like, everybody. All right? Just mark that one down. And he's on this hill and he's teaching his people. We spent quite a bit of time in chapter 5 last fall. And we're going to start chapter 6 for the next five weeks today. And what we're going to do is... And Jesus speaks to all these people that are following him, and he says, you guys, you really don't see how life's supposed to be. Let me tell you, because I made it. And so he's going to start by teaching through different aspects of life, teaching through different aspects of our daily routine, and he's going to kind of hopefully redefine them as something they haven't seen yet. And he's going to say there's a better, greater way. And in the beginning of chapter 6, he, he doesn't pull any punches, and he starts with, well, for us, I think is a really weighty topic. He leans into the conversation about religion. You know, and that's a tough one for us. I don't know if you guys have been following the evangelical, that's what we are, subculture. I follow it because I live it and it pays the bills. But in that subculture, there's been a movement over the last decade or so against religion. Religion almost, I think, has become in some ways a four-letter word that we don't want to talk about. There's been slogan after slogan. There's a couple we're going to put up here. The first and probably the most popular is Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. That's on coffee mugs. That's how you know it's good. Okay. Um, it's not a religion. It's a relationship. There's a video, a huge viral YouTube video that went public probably six or seven years ago. I don't know. I have a kid now. It always seems like 20 years ago. And uh, it was called Jesus Hates Religion and it got really big. I don't know if you saw it. And then on top of that, I've heard this phrase, religion says do, but Christianity says done. 
And so what we've seen in our little part of the world is this move against organized religion and towards individual relationship. And don't mishear me today. That is very, very good because our faith has a component of individual relationship. And I think it starts from a beautiful place. People want to move away from religion because let's just be honest, organized religion has caused a lot of pain in our world. It has. Look at the news. Organized religion killed 380 people a week ago. It killed more people today in California. Organized religion is responsible for everything in the Catholic Church. It's a black eye on people that follow Jesus. And I'm sure we all know somebody who's affected by that. Organized religion is the byproduct of affairs and of people that are stealing. Organized religion started the Crusades. Organized religion is responsible for a lot of pain. So I, in every single way, understand when people look at me and they say, organized religion is bad. I don't belong to a religion. I belong to a relationship. True. But I don't think that's the whole story. Because here's the deal. You and I came into this place today with tons of baggage about what religion is and what church is. Tons of baggage. Because all your experiences in the church and maybe sometimes out of the church and reading the news has formed an idea of the goodness or the badness of this four-letter word that we call religion. And you come and you bring that baggage here today. And so I don't know what yours is, but I pray that you give me some grace today as we talk about religion. Because let me tell you, if you know my story, a little of mine, I've got loads of baggage against religion, especially the church. If you've known me for a while, you've probably heard my story, but I'll give you high level. The first time I decided to go to church on my own, which was when my parents didn't drag me there, you know, which was every Sunday. Uh, the first time I decided to do that youth group thing, because, you know, mid-90s, that's what we did. And there was this, this choir tour, and you'd rehearse for nine months to do a box step in jazz hands to really simple songs. I don't know why it took that long, but it did, everybody. And you'd travel and stay in YMCA's and stay in people's houses and talk about Jesus. And so... My friends were going, they invited me, and I said, yeah, sure, let's do this church youth group thing. So I went, and we rehearsed for four or five months, and it's a couple weeks before we were about to leave. And uh, these guys, seniors in the church, they pulled me aside. I was in seventh grade, and they, they looked at me, and they said, hey, Charlie, um, maybe it's better if you didn't go. And I said, but my jazz hands are on point, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and they said, I'll never forget this, they, they said, we don't feel like God can do what he wants to do if you and your friends go on this trip. So, honest to God, I, I can give you more stories, but I've always felt like a square peg in a round hole of the church. Religion carries some baggage for me, and every time I walk in church doors, it still struggles to feel comfortable, you know? And so for a long, long time, I, I ran from church, I ran from religion, I knew Jesus loved me, and that's all I needed. What I want to do today is talk about the role of religion and what Jesus says about it, because I think we all have baggage, you know? And if it's good, God is good. If it's bad, join me and let's talk about it. So before we do that, um, we're going to need to pray just because, uh, and, and we do this every week at Crossroads. If you're new to us, we have two goals on Sunday morning. One is we want to know God, and, and we know God by opening his word. And we do that every week because we cannot get to the end of knowing the fullness of God. And that doesn't scare us. That actually hopefully causes us to worship because it shows us that he's majestic and my God that I worship is bigger than me that I'll never be able to comprehend or understand the depths to who he is. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. If I can comprehend fully my God, he's not much of a God. And so we study the scripture every single week together knowing fuller and fuller who God is. And then that causes us to worship and we experience God because God made us with emotions and we don't run from, we run towards them because God made us holistically to worship him with all of who we are. So we sing some songs and we pray. 
And what that means for you is that it's not my job fully to get God to speak to you. He's speaking. You got to listen. This is not a consumer culture-based activity. This means that the Spirit is alive and active if you're a follower of Jesus. And every time we open the Scripture, when we open the Word, you need to be asking the question, where is the Spirit teaching, guiding, encouraging, and edifying me this morning? What is God trying to teach me? That's your job as we come to the text. My job is to not say things that get me fired, okay? Big difference there. And so we're going to take the first couple minutes, and we're just going to pray. And I'm going to ask if you're comfortable that you pray silently that God might speak to you, the Holy Spirit might shape your soul into the character of Jesus this morning. And I ask that you pray for me that I'm clear um, and that I teach true to the character of God that we find in the scriptures. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can gather in these spaces. It is a grace to come together and to open the word and to talk about a God who will never fully understand, but we can fully know. It's a dichotomy that I love to step into. I pray that we're grateful and glad for it. As we come to the text this morning, I pray that you teach us spirit. I pray that you guide us, that you convict us, that you shape our soul. So if you're comfortable, take a couple seconds and just pray to yourself and ask the spirit might teach and lead you today as we open the text. And then I'd ask that you pray for me that my words might be encouraging and edifying and paint a true picture of who God is and what he's doing in our world. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Now we're in together. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to get going at the first part of this. So he's talking to his disciples and a bunch of people that have gathered on a hill. And what he's going to do in our text, if you've read this text before, what, he gives a principle in verse 1 and 2. And then after that, he gives three different parallel ways that principle works itself out in their life, in their time. So he's going to say in the first two verses, this is the thing. And then let me give you three examples of what the thing looks like. And they look pretty much the same. He just attacks a different action behind it. And those actions are really important what they are. So let's start in three verse 1 together. He says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. We come to our first kind of action item of the day. He says, be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. We have to define that term righteousness. Because sometimes that term righteousness, it always means the same thing, but different nuances of the text give it a different flavor, if you will. So righteousness is always the ways and standards of God. In the Beatitude series, we defined righteousness as the character and conduct that conforms to God's desire and design. As we live into God's ways, we see God's rhythms take over. And that character and conduct that we live into because we love God manifests itself in righteousness in our world. But, but that word righteousness in the New Testament is used in some different ways. Let me, let me explain it with an example. So I think the best job in the world... Well, outside of being the senior pastor at Crossroads Bible Church, I think the, the best job in the world is held by a guy named Daniel Vaughn. I don't know if you know who Daniel Vaughn is. About five or six years ago, there was a young man, and I guess he really liked barbecue because he's alive. And um, there's a magazine called Texas Monthly. And he wrote him, and he said, you know what, you know what doesn't exist? There is no such thing as a barbecue food writer and editor. 
that doesn't exist in our world. We have all these food critics for everything but barbecue. I want to be that. And so he started, all he did was drove from city to city, from podunk town to podunk town, and he went and tried barbecue all over the state of Texas. And Texas Monthly liked it, and they picked him up. And now this man is paid to eat brisket for a living. Really. He drives around the state of Texas, and he eats barbecue, and once a year, he posts a top 50 list, and he ranks the top 10, and then the other 40 are just in any order, and it is the holy grail of barbecue in our world. This man is my hero, everybody, all right? And so what I mean by that is it's fun to read his articles because you see different flavors of barbecue. He'll talk about this one place in East Texas feels more like North Carolina barbecue or this one place feels more like Memphis barbecue or this one place feels more like Kansas City barbecue. And, and then every once in a while I'll say this place is true Texas barbecue, which is the best. Even that phrase itself, I was talking to a buddy of mine who lives in Chicago, and I said barbecue, and they think barbecue is anything on a grill. And I said, that's grilled. You get that? See how that works together? He's working on it a little bit, all right? And so what he does is he talks about all these nuances of the same phrase or term, smoked meats, but the way you use it can have very different implications. Same thing with righteousness. So in one sense, righteousness is seen as our justification before God. It's what Jesus did on the cross. He said, I'm going to die, and I was perfect. This is, this is Corinthians. So that when God looks at you, he sees my perfectness, not your messed upness. That's the intrinsic, that is the main point of the gospel. That when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. That is a justification that is righteousness. But also there's this idea of sanctification, which is us growing in our righteousness. It's the daily pursuit of God's good and design, like we talked about. So while we are made righteous justificationally, positionally in front of God every single day, and you can't have a really good day and earn more of God's favor, or a really bad day and earn less of God's favor, because it's already there based on what Jesus did for you. That's why it's good news, right? We still live into righteousness. We have good days and bad days. And, and, and it says all throughout the New Testament, this is what Jesus says, pursue it this way. Live this way. Live into righteousness. That's why he says, show people or don't show people your righteousness. But in Matthew chapter 6, I think we see a different nuance of that word righteousness. And, and it kind of changes how we see what Jesus is saying here. So he says in Matthew chapter 6, and we just read it, be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. But if you, if you go back less than a chapter in Matthew 5, verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before men so that they can see your goodness and give honor to your Father in heaven. Okay, I need to know what he wants me to do. Does he want me to let my light shine and show my righteousness? Or does he want me to shut the light switch off and not show my righteousness? We seemingly have conflicting advice on what to do with our pursuit of righteousness. And it's because he's talking about a different kind. In Matthew 5, he just got done talking about the morality that drives the people of God. The principles that we live into and that go before us. Things like meekness and like, you know, the different beatitudes that he talks about. And so he says, those things pursue so that people might see my good ways in the world, be the salt and be the light. Don't shy away from that. In Matthew 6, he changes tone. In Matthew 6, what he talks about when he says, do not display your righteousness merely to please other people, what he's talking about is a specific set of righteous actions. And that's what's outlined in verses 1 through 18. And there's three of them. He talks about almsgiving, which is giving to the poor. He, he talks about prayer. And he talks finally about fasting. 
And Jesus didn't just pick those three out of the air. He didn't just pick those because he was thinking about it, because he forgot to pray today, and because he was really hungry, right? He picked those three because at the heart of the Jewish faith, those were the three actions tied with your duty to your faith. They were what we call pious acts. Those were things that your, your faith, your religion called you, expected you to do. Give to the poor, pray to God, and fast. One Jewish commentator talked about it and he said, it encapsulates our relationship with the world. We talk about how we love others we give. We talk about how we nurture and love God we pray. We talk about how we nurture and love ourselves we fast so that we might depend on God every day. It encapsulated the entirety of the Jewish person. So when Jesus says these three examples, what he's doing isn't picking random examples. He's saying things that made sense to a first century Jew that would define their religion. I think in this text, Jesus is talking about how to live a greater religion than what they're living. And it's not just about your actions or morality. John Stott is a theologian. We'll quote him quite a bit today. And he talks about this kind of pulling between the two, morality and piety. And he says, there's no need to choose between piety and morality, religious devotion in church and active service in the world, loving God and loving our neighbor. Since Jesus taught that authentic Christian righteousness includes both. So Jesus gets up in front of these people and he's talked about who they are individually and then he's going to talk about who they are corporately. He's going to talk about their religion, their pursuit of God together through systems and structures that hopefully point back to God. That was outlined in the Old Testament law. Almsgiving, praying, and finally he's going to talk about, about fasting. And he continues on. He says, don't show them in front of people. For people, be careful not to display your righteousness merely to be seen by people. And there's the tension of the text today, of why they do what they do. Because ultimately, if we're going to talk about motive, which is what this talks about as motive, we have to understand something that we're not so different from the Jewish people in that respect. I think the Jewish people were pretty pragmatic, and so are we. I think Jesus said fast, they fasted. I think Jesus said pray, they prayed. And they forgot that the way we do those things matters. And I know we're a pragmatic culture, because I own a microwave, you know? And 99% of you, if you're given the option of microwaving a Hot Pocket for two minutes, putting the oven for 35 minutes, are going to choose two minutes, even though you know that it's going to taste like wet cardboard, okay? It's just the world we live in. We are pragmatic people. I know we're pragmatic people because I'm a baseball fan. Baseball season just started. Don't ask about the Rangers. Baseball season just started, and I know we're pragmatic because for a decade now, baseball is not seen as, as, as great anymore because of steroids, but baseball won't get rid of steroids. They could. If they wanted to, all they'd have to say is, if we catch you using steroids, you can never play baseball again. And sports writers talk about it. I guarantee you that will rid the field of steroids. But no, they don't do that. They give you a 50-game ban. You hit, you hit you know, 50 homers last year because you were on steroids. You got a new contract for $100 million, and they fine you 50 games. Look, they, they don't really want to get rid of steroids. What they want to do is see more home runs. This is just their way of feeling like they can do both at the same time. We're a practical culture. We're pragmatic. The end justifies the means, you know? Well, we feel like we can do something in the middle. I see it in churches all the time. Uh, it was my youth group culture growing up. Well, actually, I didn't go back to youth group. I told you the story after that. Um, and, and I see it now as on some social media feed last week. And uh, I don't know if it was a youth group thing or if it was just a church thing. I mean, the youth group is the church. Don't mishear me, please. Thank you. Uh, I don't know what it was, but somebody was saying, hey, for everybody you bring, you and your friend get a $25 gift card, you know? Okay. I mean, I guess it gets people to church. When I was growing up, it was things like, you know, pizza parties and you get to meet the pastor. That doesn't sell anymore. I think we need to go back to that. Um, 
There was one church that actually did this like money grab. They put you in this tube and they'd blow the dollar bills in the air, you know, and you'd grab at the dollar bills for two minutes. I was a newcomer to that church several times, you know. <laughs> in my 20s. <laughs> I look young, you know. I think, I think there's this idea that we're, we're a pretty pragmatic culture. And so when Jesus speaks into the three tenets of the Jewish religion, of the exercises they do together, almsgiving, praying, and fasting, he's saying, don't be pragmatic about it. So he says things like, whenever you give charitably, in verse 2, don't blow a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets so that people will praise them. What they would do is they'd walk down the streets and they would either start yelling or they would start making a lot of noise. It's not sure if they actually had trumpets or if he's being hyperbolic. But they would start yelling, I'm going to give so much money right now, it's going to change the world. Do you have any idea how much money I'm about to give? There's a, a parable, it's actually a true story, in the other Gospels. And there's a woman that gives the last bit of money she has. And then there's a Pharisee who comes and he gives a lot of money. And, and when it says he gave a lot of money, what that meant was he had like a dollar bill but instead of just putting the dollar bill in the plate, he put like, he made it rain with a hundred pennies. You know what I'm talking about? So we would look at him and be like, oh, look at all that noise. He must be giving more than everybody else. And so they would give so that people might hear them, see them. And then when it came to praying, they would stand on street corners and walk down the street just to let everybody know that they were praying for. And they'd stop at the busiest intersection and they would pray loudly and longly. So Jesus says, whenever you pray, don't be like the hypocrites because they love to pray while standing in synagogues and street corners so that people can see and hear them. It's, it's for some reason the same person we ask to pray before every Thanksgiving meal when they just keep going on and on and on and you're looking at the gravy thinking, please stop, God is good, you know? And so they would, they would do these things because they were practical people and they wanted to check the box while also getting something for themselves. And then it says, fasting says, don't be like the hypocrites who fast. And what they would do is when they started fasting, they would fast in a way that accentuated how difficult it was. So they would, they would literally, while they fasted, not bathe. If you were a Pharisee, you fasted twice a week in, as, as a Jew. And they would stop bathing and they would wear old clothes. And sometimes they'd put ash on their face. And so people would stop and ask them, because they cared, are you okay? And they would say, I'm just fasting. You know, because they couldn't have the energy to muster a full voice because it had been six hours, you know? So people would know that it's so incredibly difficult. And practically, it says to fast. And that's what they were doing. But they missed the point. It's that giving is about others and that praying is about God and that fasting is about understanding our need for God. They missed the point. They missed the idea behind what Jesus was calling them to do. Here's the hard part. What they missed was the simple fact that Jesus is saying that motive is what matters the most because the medium is the message. Because if you invite somebody to church because you're going to get a $25 gift card, what does that say about how good Jesus is and what does it say about how much you love him? Not $24 worth, you know? It's really difficult when we talk about the medium behind, the motive behind what we do and the picture it paints of the God that we're willing to serve. What he's saying, quite simply here, when he says, check your motive, is that unintended consequences often shout pretty silently, and you might not be able to see them, but you can feel them. Because if people weren't around, they wouldn't give. If people weren't around, they wouldn't pray. If people weren't around, they wouldn't fast. And what does that say about their God? And this is the center of their religious activity. And, and, and you know, to be honest, I can't say that I blame them. I can't say that in some ways I don't understand what they were doing. I can't 
say that I'd do something differently because I think we do this kind of stuff all the time in our different forms and systems and structures our religious takes on because it's so subtle, you know? Pride is so incredibly subtle. You oftentimes just don't see it coming and it's been there from the very, very beginning. The idea that we want to be the center of our universe when God says that's my role and my place. Pride is often so subtle Jesus says the way that you get around pride in our text here over and over again, he says the way that you get around pride is you do things secretly. The way that you get around pride, if you look at the verses, it says don't do these things. The way that you get around them is that you don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. He's saying because we are not people, we are not people who are going to be hypocrites. And that's a hard phrase. If you don't know where it comes from, it comes from a Greek character who was an orator and then an actor, and so we call it hypocrisy because his name was that, and it literally means that every part of your life is you're putting on a show. The world is your stage. And so what you're doing is not who you really are. So when we call people hypocrites, it goes back to the Greek character, and Jesus says, don't be like these hypocrites because they're after something else. And it's subtle, and it's hard. I see it in little ways, not just big ways. We typically focus on the big ways, you know? But I see it all throughout my life. So for example, we're taking our first little family and extended family vacay in two weeks. We're gonna go to the beach. And when I found out this trip was happening, I thought, oh, this is gonna be great. I'm gonna get in shape. It's gonna be good. I bought a mat, you know? I made some space in my garage. I signed up for a P90X, you know, beach body membership. And I had this idea that I'm gonna go on the beach. I'm gonna be in great shape. And if you would have asked me why, I would have said something like, because it's good to be healthy, you know? Because... Because I want to walk my kid down the aisle in 30 years. If you asked me why and I was being honest, I'd say because when I'm on the beach, I want people to look at me and say, who's that? And I want my wife to go, that's my husband. You know? That's what I wanted. Okay, none of that is about to happen in two weeks and my pride's going to go from here to way down here. But it's subtle. It's subtle. It's the idea that my audience isn't God, it's everybody else. And that's the question we ask. We're trying to figure out if we're hypocritical or if we're not. We're trying to figure out if we're pharisaical and how we practice our faith or not. The question we have to ask, quite simply, is who's our audience? Is it God or is it the people around us? And it's subtle and it sneaks in the very little ways that we live out our faith. I do this for a living and I'm here every Sunday and every time I worship, I think about the people sitting next to me and if I'm on pitch or if I'm not, if I sing louder or if I'm not, it's ways that the subtle, the subtle sin of pride kind of seeps into my life. And what happens in those moments, even though it seems really small, what happens is I make my audience people that are more than God. And what Jesus is saying is your audience is God and you have to be okay with that. And if you're not, then you got some work to do. What he's saying, if you're not good enough with just God, knowing that you did it and being okay with you doing it, if you need others to weigh in on your action, then you've missed the point entirely. John Calvin has a quote that I loved. He said, he means that we ought to be satisfied with having God as our only witness. And so I guess part of today is <laughs> there's not gonna be a ton of, of go and do, go and do, go and do because these are things hopefully we're doing. You're on a Sunday morning service. You're checking the box of let's gather together. My question to you is when you go and pray and when you fast, if you do, and when you, which I'm gonna fast in two weeks before the beach for Jesus, and when you... Um, and when you show up on Sunday morning, my question, when you worship and sing or don't sing and pray, when you do what you do, my question is, who are you doing it for? That's what Jesus is asking these people. He's saying, because let's talk about the heart of what your religion is. 
And if you're tempted to show people that you do these things, then maybe that's a point where you don't and shouldn't show them in the first place. Maybe Bruce is a theologian and he says, show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. And here's why that happens. Ultimately, this all happens because we want to be worshipped and we were made to be worshippers. That's the heart of it. We want to be worshipped and we were made to be worshippers. It's a song that we sang before. It's how God created us. We were meant to worship God, but every time we put ourselves in the middle of religion and religious activity, every time we put ourselves in the middle of good action that Jesus calls us to, we turn ourselves in the thing that is worshipped instead of worshipping in the first place. And that's when things get skewed. That's when things get wrong. That's when religion turns from something that can be good to something that is bad and hurts people. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't be that. Don't be like the hypocrites. They show a bad sign of what I've called you into. It's what happens when we want to be worshipped, not worshippers. And so Jesus says that the key, the answer to subtle pride is, is secrecy. Because here's the deal, is subtle pride is not one of those things that's going to go away. There are sins you and I have that you can shut the door on and revisit in 20 years and still say, yeah, pretty good on that one, you know? But then there are ones that we wake up with and we fight every day. This is one we wake up with and we fight every day. You, me, and everybody else. This is a shared one, you know? This is what they talk about in Genesis 3 and in the Tower of Babel and in Romans 1 when he says that you turn the creation into what you worship the creation and not the creator. This is the center of most of the problems in our world when we turn the things that we're supposed to be worshipers into the worshiped. It doesn't go well for us. Gallup just released a poll this last week. They do it every year. It's the annual global state of emotions report. And it said, I quote, the world is sadder, angrier, and more fearful than it's ever been before. <laughs> that's what happens when you turn the thing that's supposed to be a worshiper into what is worshiped. Jesus says don't do that. But when we're hypocrites, that's exactly what we're doing. That's what the Pharisees were doing every single time. God says there's another way. And, and here's why you do that is you're afraid that nobody will see you. You're afraid that you won't get your reward. You're afraid that people won't think you're great. And Jesus said it's not about what people think. It's about what God does. And so he says, if you do that, you have your reward. But what you do in secret, don't worry about it. I promise you God sees. Even though it doesn't seem like he sees it, he does see it. And his reward is greater than the one one you're going to get when people say you're great because it's lasting and because it fits. My wife is not a sports person. She is a movie person. She, her Super Bowl is the Oscars. So every year we watch it. We do this little thing that we circle and I don't know what any of the movies are and we try and watch all the best picture nominations before the Oscars come out and I think it's like 13 now so that's never going to happen. But you know, and as we circle the ones we, we always ask on the night of the Oscars, what won last year? And I'm not kidding. These are supposed to be the best movies I've ever seen in my entire life. And I can't give you three of the best picture nominations from like six months ago, you know? Because the rewards we get from people fade, even though we never think they will. But God says, what you do in secret, I, the everlasting God, will everlastingly reward. And oftentimes what that looks like is just the consequence of the action that we step into. C.S. Lewis says this in his book, The Weight of Glory. I love it. He says, the proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consummation. That's what that means, is that Mother's Day is coming up and you're not a good mother because you really like Hallmark cards, right? You're not a good mother because you like whatever chinky gift you're going to get or flowers or all that stuff. The reward of being a mother is being a mother, and that's how God designed it. 
God's saying, I will reward you in secret. It's the ways that you should be rewarded. So when you give most of the time, that's going to be rewarded in itself. If your heart's in the right place, that should spring up joy within you. When you pray, your reward is that your relationship with God deepens, even if nobody sees it. And when you fast, what you lean into and lean on is a dependence in God that we so often forget in our world because we have everything we want, we forget there's stuff that we need. He says, you have your reward because God is good and he sees it. So Jesus is warning people not to live in a way that makes others the audience that gets rewards from the people around him. He's saying, this is not what religion is supposed to be. He says, so the goal is righteousness, religious righteousness, and how you show your faith when you gather together. And these three tenets of the Jewish faith, this is what righteousness looks like. This is what it's for. You've done it the wrong way. Fight the tension of making it about other people and not solely about God. And if you do that, know that God sees and will reward in a way that's richer and deeper and better. Jesus speaking into a religious culture. And here's the thing, I think as a culture, if we move away from the concept of religion, we lose something. So just to define it, because we haven't yet, religion is a set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe. I think what that means is pretty much that everybody has religion. Even if you don't believe in God, your lack of belief in God is a religion that orients your understanding of how the universe works. I don't think the idea of religions in general are toxic or nebulous or bad or harmful or hurtful. I think religion is a neutral term that emphasizes what it's pointing towards. And every time our religion points towards us, it becomes evil. So Jesus is saying, don't do that with these three religious things. Because when religion revolves around man, it is bad. So when we look at our text... And we see what Jesus is talking about and talking into. I don't think he's just talking about simply actions or characteristics and morality. I think he's talking to the purpose of religion in the first place. And he's saying the purpose of your religion isn't you. The purpose of your religion is pointing back to God. And when you make it about you, you break it. So, when I look at why we have baggage when it comes to the, the four-letter R word, when I look at why I can look at the Catholic Church and be detested, and when I look at last weekend and understand, don't understand how people can do what they do, when I, when I look at however many years ago it was that my church asked me not to come back, I think it's really easy to say religion is bad and failed me, but maybe that's not what happened. Maybe religion didn't fail me. Maybe we have failed religion. Because Jesus says this can be a good that you can live into. Jesus says, there's a better way, there's a greater way to do these things. And you know, you know why I think that's true is because God started a religion. <laughs> Read the Old Testament. God created a people and he said, here's some forms and some structures and some activities and some commonalities and some chants and some prayers and some sacrificial language. Here is how you use form and structure when you gather together to emphasize me, not you. And every time they did that, it went well. Every time they didn't, they broke down. Religion was started by God to point us back to God. And every time we move away from the concept of religion, we move into individualism and I think we lose part of what our faith is supposed to be. I think we do. So I don't think Jesus hates religion and I don't think religion is evil and I don't think religion only brings pain. I think religion is neutral and when we make religion about us, those things happen. And we blame God. There was a friend of mine 
who is probably five or six years ago. I grew up with her and we knew each other really well. And she had a hard time with, with dating. Um, man, she's so sweet and she was attractive and, you know, all the things you want to be and athletic and all the things, right? And she exited a really, really bad, I mean, really bad relationship. And she's in her car and she was out of town then and she was back in town visiting and she's sobbing in the car. And I'm sitting there thinking, is it locked? If I leave now, is it awkward? You know? And, um, cause I'm a really good friend, everybody. And, and I think at this point I was a middle school pastor. So I knew nothing about relationships that didn't involve not texting. And so I, uh, started talking to her about it. And she said, I just don't understand why this is happening. I said, I'm so sorry. And she said, it always ends like this. I said, yeah, I'm so sorry. And she said, I don't know why God would do this. And I said, let's talk for a second, you know? And I said, hey, I love you, but in any way did you involve God in any of the process getting to this point? I said, did we use God's standards for good? Did we follow what God says about how to be in a relationship? Was God at the center of your relationship? And she's like, not really. I mean, it could have been better. And no, and this is not a guilt or shame thing. My point to her was simply, and if we haven't included God in the process, let's not blame God for the results. That's what we do with religion. We make it about us and we say God is bad. I think what Jesus is saying is there's a better way. Because systems and structures is good. It provides accountability. Greater religion is about God, not man. It's an outward overflow of an inward pursuit of God and his ways. It's a grace and a gift. And when we talk about it like something that is evil, we miss out not just on the grace and the gift, but the accountability and the community that comes with knowing that the story of God did not begin with me and will not end when I'm gone. Because my faith is not just about my relationship with Jesus. It's about so much more. When we make religion about us, we forget that. Religion reminds us that there is an us. It's a beautiful thing. Because I spent 10, 12 years really, really, really hating the church. Not liking what it stood for because I thought it was broken. Not liking the people, assuming the people were evil, that they were trying to do good. I spent a long time running from the church and I think maybe the whole time I put guilt and blame in places where it shouldn't have been. Because I think religion in our culture and construct plays into this toxic individualism that says that my faith is only mine. It's not, it's ours and we share it because God is ours and we share him. And so when Jesus says, don't make religion about you, what he's saying is remember the point of it in the first place. Remember what it can be. Remember what it's supposed to point to. Remember that good religion reminds us that God is doing something bigger than you, broader than us. He is redeeming any and all. And so what that does for me is it helps me press into spaces like this, press into churches when everything inside of me says, run the other way because it only causes pain. It helps me say, but we get a chance as the people of God to see what you don't see and to say there's another greater, better way. Let's be that church, not the one that's on the news every single day. What it says is Jesus cares very much about structures and organization and how we gather together. What it says is that he says there's a better way than what we see. And we can find that again if we make it about him and not us. He says there's a greater religion. That's why I love this text. Because it forced me to deal with all of my baggage. Not all of it. That would take years. But it's getting there. And hopefully it forces us too as well. Because I think it's toxic when we say that there's no place for religion in our relationship with Jesus. Because I think he would disagree. Because we get to come together as a people and paint a picture of something that most people can't see. We get to paint a picture of a world that Jesus says existed and the proof of it is my resurrection, but you have to press into it. So my prayer for us today is two things. One, 
to really challenge our motives and why we do what we do, who we're doing it for, and then two, to challenge how we see religion, how we see structure, how we see church, and hopefully see it like Jesus does. Let me pray for us. God, I'm, thank you. I'm, I'm thankful for the church. <laughs> I'm thankful for the structure and the systems and sometimes the messiness and that you let me be a part of it because I shouldn't be able to do this, but I do. And it's the grace of God. I'm thankful for how the church has helped bring healing, even though it's brought hurt. I'm thankful that you call us to live into a better way of doing these things together. You don't call us to abandon it. You didn't say, if you do these things, you said, when you do these things, help us to be a church that does these things, that always keeps God in the center of what we do and fight the subtle sin of pride that creeps in and makes it about us. Help us be a church that points to a greater life, a greater religion, and ultimately when it's found in who Jesus is. Because it's been our hope for thousands and thousands of years. And it will be well after this place is gone. And I pray these things in his name. Amen.